sacrament of baptism, which is a symbol of, a, of cleansing and initiation into the church, and the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is a, a sign of sustenance and continuation uh, in the, the faith and in the church. And so I focus on the Lord's Supper this morning uh, because you're going to celebrate it next Sunday. And you might say, but don't we pretty much understand the Lord's Supper? And my answer to that is, well, yes and no. Uh, my hunch is that most of us uh, feel like we could understand it a little better. I also would want to do this because I'm, I'm a, a Vince Lombardi type of, of pastor and Christian. Now, uh, I reveal my age to bring out uh, the name of Coach Lombardi, but Coach Lombardi's view was that, that games are not won by trick plays, uh, that they are won by teams that can block and tackle the best. And I think in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blocking and tackling are the means of grace, right? The, the word and the sacraments and the prayer and prayer. And so we, we need to grow in our understanding uh, of what we are about and that which we do so regularly. Now, we are told, uh, both in the preparatory form that I read and uh, in the scriptures themselves, that we are to be worthy partakers of the Lord's Supper. What does that mean? What does that mean for you and me? And more importantly, how can I be a worthy partaker? What practical steps can I take this week as I prepare and next week as I participate to be a worthy partaker so that it's pleasing to God and a blessing to me? And so I want to focus today on next Sunday in the sense of what to do during the Lord's Supper. Um, what, what should I be thinking about? What should I be doing? How can I be a worthy partaker? And I want to do that by looking at a message I entitled, Where to Look During the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to confess to you, I got the idea from this, for this message from a short article uh, written by J.I. Packer, entitled Taking the Lord's Supper Seriously. I have significantly added to, uh, amended, altered what Dr. Packer did. Um, not that what he did was bad or deficient, but that he was writing an article and I'm preaching a sermon and the two are very different, okay? So let me pray and then I want to read from 1 Corinthians 11. Let's pray. Father, uh, we turn to you unfilled again. We turn to you in need of the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, that the one who inspired these words would illuminate them to our understanding, and that we would be transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, or as the scriptures tell us, from one degree of glory to another. And Father, uh, your, your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. Uh, it is a hammer, Jeremiah tells us. And I pray that you would use it powerfully in our midst this morning, uh, that you'd use a wretchedly sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus, that your spirit would fall upon us and that you would transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17, words I'm sure are very familiar to uh, most of you. 
1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17, let me remind you, we believe the Bible is the word of God written, the only infallible and inerrant uh, rule of faith and practice. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this. As often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning The body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. The grass withers and flowers will fade away, but this is God's word. It will not fade away. It abides forever and forever. You might say that Christmas has three phases, uh, before, during, and after. Before, when we're doing all the planning and preparation, during, you know, when we or having a meal and have family and have gifts and go to worship and things like that. And then afterwards, when we're in recovery mode and reflection mode, and we're thinking about, well, how did it all go? What could we do better uh, next time? And I think the Lord's Supper can be thought of in a similar way beforehand, during it, and afterwards when we reflect on how it went and what can we do to make it better. I'm thinking this morning particularly about what to do during the actual communion service, what you'll be doing next Sunday morning, God willing. Um, What you do beforehand in preparation, like reading the form today and hearing this sermon is important. I, I do not deny that. And what you'll do afterward in reflection is also important. But I want to focus on what we do when we're actually in a Supper, where the Lord of uh, service, rather, where the Lord's Supper is served, and I want to suggest that you 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 look for certain things, and I want to suggest that 
that you look in five directions quickly. And I'm going to use a theological order, not necessarily the order that's in the text, okay? So what do I do next week and this week, for this part at least? And the first thing is you look at yourself in self-examination. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, the instruction is not for you to examine your spouse or your children or your parents or your friend that's sitting on the other side of the auditorium this morning. The instruction is to examine yourself. As a matter of fact, it doesn't even say that the elders should examine you. It says examine yourself. And, and you're to be honest with yourself in accordance with what the scriptures teach as you prepare to come to the Lord's Supper. I was years ago now, um, probably um, nine, excuse me, six years ago, my youngest granddaughter was nine. She lives in Vancouver, Canada. We're up there visiting her. She goes over to the bookshelf and she pulls off a book of nursery rhymes and she brings it to me and says, read it. And so, you know, what's the grandfather going to do? He's going to read, you know. His granddaughter says, read nursery rhymes, you read them, you know. Uh, little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating his Christmas pie, and little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, and, and the old lady who lived in a shoe, and I got to the end of it, and she said, again. <laughs> and so I read it again, every word of every rhyme. Think about one of those. Little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating his Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? Except there are no good boys. <laughs> there are no good boys. If you have daughters that date, you realize that, and you're nervous when they go out, right? There are no good boys. Um, and little Miss Muffet, who sat on her tuffet, was not a good girl, nor the old woman who lived in a shoe, nor anyone else. And when you examine yourself honestly, friend, you will know that. When you examine yourself, look at the outside. Look at the bad things you've done. Start with the Ten Commandments. Somebody asked me, Alan, what sins do you struggle with? I'd say, well, pretty much all of them. Let's start with the Ten Commandments. I, I've transgressed against every one of them, and frequently. Look at Jesus' interpretation of the Ten Commandments, his application of those Ten Commandments in Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. Look at the good things you've left undone. That's what the Pharisees missed. Look at the positive statements of the will of God. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And friend, if the Holy Spirit's working in you, you will not say, yeah, I've done that. Love your neighbors yourself. We haven't done that one either. Listen to the words you've spoken at work and at home and at school. Reflect on your actions and your inactions, your treatment of others. Sad to say, especially those in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look also on the inside. Examine your heart desires. Examine your motives. Examine your attitude toward your obedience. I think one of the really significant sins in Presbyterian and Reformed churches is that we tend to take partial obedience as complete obedience. I do one thing right, and I say, well, what a good boy am I? Well, yes, you may do one thing right and another thing right, but there'll be a long list of things that you've done wrong as well. Do you take 
a plum on your thumb, that is something good happening in your life, is a sign that you're a good person or a sign of God's grace? How do you interpret that? Examine your attitude toward your disobedience. You know, people say, well, boys will be boys. Or I'm only human. But better to say I'm a rebel against the God of love and grace. Examine your attitude toward blessings of others. How do you react when something good happens to a brother or sister in Christ? Something really good. That you rejoice with them? Or do you think, well, you know, if they knew that person like I knew that person, they wouldn't have done that. That wouldn't have happened. Those kinds of things. Look at how you've sinned. I'm saying first, look at yourself. Examine yourself. Look within. Look how you've sinned against God, your holy creator, and against God's grace, your redeemer, who sacrificed his son and sent you his holy spirit. And how you sinned against Jesus' church. And how you've sinned repeatedly and terribly. We are broken people in a broken world. And an honest self-examination reveals it. Why do we start here? Why do you start with self-examination theologically? I think because the purpose of self-examination is that we might hunger for Christ that we might see that our condition without Christ is desperate and that we might long for him and appreciate him so much. Now, a caveat to that. Look at yourself, but not just yourself, and not for too long. The devil will try to make you discouraged and despondent it's because when you start with self-examination and you continue it and continue it and continue it, the devil may whisper in your ear and say, it's hopeless for a person like you. Nobody like you could be a Christian. Nobody like you could have faith to believe that you're forgiven. The devil's whispered that in some of your ears. I know he has. He whispers it in mine. Right? So you look within, but... Not too long, and not just within. One person has said, for every look within, you should take ten looks at Christ. I, I agree with that. Believe that, that God desires that we hunger for Christ and we repent and come to him. In this little book, a small book about a big problem, it's a book about anger, uh, uh, Ed Welch, who... Uh, teaches, I think it used to teach at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. I don't know if he does now. But anyway, he says about this self-examination thing, throughout it all, you walk a fine line. You want to be undone by the wrongness of your sin, and you want to rest in God's forgiveness. You want to confess murder, adultery, arrogant judgment, and pride, and you want to know that your very confession is the work of God's spirit in you and a consequence of his love. It is confession with a bit of a smile. Your confession is another way of saying, I need Jesus. So as you think about coming to the Lord's table, as you're actually there, you look within. Secondly, you look back in time 
at the Lord Jesus Christ in thankful remembrance. The text says in verse 24 and then in verse 25, do this in remembrance of me. Look back at Jesus in thankful remembrance as you remember, say, Christmas and his covenant commitment and humility in coming to the earth. If you want to, look all the way back to the Exodus and the Passover and remember that the scriptures tell us that Christ, who is our Passover, it's because of the blood of Christ that God passes over our sin like he passed over ancient Israel's sin when they were coming out of Egypt. Look back and remember that Jesus came. Look back and remember his life, a sinless life, a a life that was sinless as a substitute. God required of Adam and Eve to live a perfect life. He requires of you and me, live a perfect life. And try as I may, I'm not even close. And you're not either. And so we need a substitute in living. And so Jesus passed the, the, the test at his temptation when the devil tested, tested him and tempted him to sin and to bypass the cross and take his glory without going to the cross. And, and he resisted when Peter said, you shall never die, Lord. And, and what did Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter at that point is just like the devil at the temptation saying to Jesus, don't go to the cross. He substituted for us in his life. It's a substitutionary life as well as a substitutionary death. His death was undeserved. His death was willing and voluntary as well as a substitute. Surely he bore our sins and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look back and remember his incarnation. Remember his substitutionary life. Remember his substitutionary death. Remember his resurrection. A real resurrection. A bodily resurrection. A victorious resurrection over sin and death and the devil. Remember the resurrection is a promissory note. A promissory note on our own resurrection. That Jesus is only the first fruits, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. When you look back, you look back at his resurrection. You look back at his ascension, a glorious and regal ascension, whereby he is enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. Aren't we moved? I hope, unless we've grown cold and calloused by thankful remembrance. I hope so. I think so. I pray so. And so when we look back, we see these things. And that prepares us to come to the table rightly. So you look within first. You look back second. Thirdly, you look up. You look up. Yeah, you look up. The cup of blessing that we bless, and this is in 1 Corinthians 10... The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a 
participation, a koinonia-ing in the body of Christ. It's very difficult, it seems to me, and I say this over a few decades of pastoral experience. Most people that I've ever pastored, if I say, do you believe that Jesus lived a sinless life, died, died a, a, an awful death as a substitute, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and someday he's coming back again, do you believe that? Most people say yes. I think most of you would say yes. If you then say to people, look up, you believe Jesus is looking over you today, present tense, that his arms are wide open, that he's continuing to say to you, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that he does all things well, there's nothing in life, nothing in death, nothing in things present, nothing in things to come that can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, that that's a present tense truth. And do you believe it? And most people say, well, I struggle with that one, Pastor. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Because we, we, we don't have too much trouble, most Christians I've been around, about saying from the heart that they believe those facts and truths of the gospel. But when I say, do you believe Jesus is alive and he loves you and he's watching over you and he'll do good to you? Then look up. There he is. Here again his promise, promises, here again his offers. Feel afresh the warmth of his love, the offers for his forgiveness. I've told you that our sins are terrible and frequent. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus forgives repeat offenders. The very ones, the very ones, if you go into a local court and you're a first-time offender, the judge probably let you off on certain offenses. But if, if it's the 10th or 20th time, the judge is going to say, you're not serious about this. He's going to throw the book at you. So when you come to the Lord's Supper next Sunday, you'll come as a repeat offender. And the sins you will confess, you will have confessed dozens of times before, most of you. And that's the reason you'll wonder, will he forgive somebody like me? Is the gospel that big? Is the gospel that good? Is the gospel that true? Does he really forgive repeat offenders? Yes. That's the good news. Yes. Yes. Look up. Believe again the gospel promises that you're justified by faith and adopted into his family and written into his will and given his name. Believe that you're united to Jesus Christ and he is interceding for you. Why doubt? Dr. Packer himself says in one part of his article, Jesus is the true minister each time the supper is celebrated. We should think of the bread and wine as coming to us from his hand, as he is guaranteed to us that in love he will continue to nourish us spiritually forever. It's not Alan that feeds you. It's not Pastor Joling that feeds you. It's Jesus that feeds you. There's the present tense, you see. There's the present tense. So you look within, you look back, and you look up. And you look forward. Look forward? Yeah, you look forward. You look forward to Jesus' return in expectation and hope. You see, the book of Revelation tells us that there's coming uh, marriage 
And that associated with the coming marriage, right? Who is, the, who is who's, where's the, what's the marriage? Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride, right? And, and he comes for his bride, right? And, and associated with the marriage, there's a marriage feast. Revelation chapter 19 at verse 7, Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. And then in verse 9, the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's very interesting, and I just digress just a bit. Adam and Eve in the garden, what did they do? Well, they ate and drank in the presence of God. When Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up on the mountain in Exodus 24. It says they saw the God of Israel in what? And they ate and drank. Really? Yes, really. Exodus 24, you can read it this afternoon after your nap. And then you come to the Lord's Supper and you eat and drink with God. And you come to the new heavens and the new earth. And what do you do? You eat and drink again in the presence of God. You see, the Lord's Supper is a foreshadowing of that final, eternal, abundant, beautiful meal with God forever and ever. And a part of what we should think about as we look within, look back, look up, we look forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus is going to come back visibly, bodily, unexpectedly, and gloriously. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to gather his people to himself. And he's going to protect them. And one of the things you always find, or almost always find, it's implicit if it's not explicit, in all the covenant statements is God said, I will provide for you. I will provide for you. When they were coming out of Egypt, when Israel's coming out of Egypt, and God makes his covenant promises, one of the things is, I'll provide for you in the desert. Your sandal won't wear out. And when they got hungry, he gave them uh, the manna and the quail. And when they got thirsty, he gave them the water. And so, so a part of his covenant uh, promise is to provide for his people. To dry their tears, make all things new, and give them this eternal supper. So when we look forward, we, we think of all those things and we desire him to return and to usher in that eternal state. I was reading a biography, been reading a biography, just finished it, of George Whitfield, the great evangelist, uh, British and American. He's buried in uh, Rhode Island, I think. And Whitfield made the comment, said, why do you long for the return of Jesus? And he said, most of the time, it's so that all your problems will be solved. <laughs> And, and Whitfield says, no, no, you got it wrong. He says, what you ought to long for is the same thing when you long for when you're waiting for your wife to come home. You ought to long for Jesus to come back so you can see Jesus. I thought, I'm rebuked. <laughs> I'm rebuked. Yeah, because I'm going to see Jesus. And I'm going to be made like him because I'm going to see him as he is. And he's going to usher in this wonderful, eternal state is far more glorious than the garden. Look within, look back, look up, look forward. 
What's the last one? Look around. Look around? Look around. Look at the round, look around at the body of Christ in fellowship and love. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look around. Think about them, the church that was present with them at this time, the, the, the church at Corinth. What was the problem at, at Corinth? What's the problem in 1 Corinthians 11 that's going on that Paul is writing uh, to correct uh, that's going on in the church at Corinth? And the, the problem at Corinth is they did not practice what they professed. I don't believe their problem was one of creed. I don't believe they didn't understand, well, the bread represents Jesus' body and, and the, the wine represents Jesus' blood. Maybe, but I don't think so. It wasn't their profession that was their problem, but it was their practice that was their problem. They said the right things. They might have quoted our creeds, but the conduct they had, even at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, denied the gospel that they professed. He says, at, very, very, at the very start of the passage, when you come together, I hear there are divisions among you. I hear that there are factions among you. You, you don't wait for one another. And what he describes is, imagine this. So, you, you know, I don't know what you do here at IRC, but, but you, everybody's probably been, it's been a Christian more than about 20 minutes. I'm kidding. Uh, you, you've been to a covered dish supper to church, right? A covered dish supper. So you go to a covered dish supper and, and you bring what the, the, you were told to bring. Maybe you brought an entree, bring, maybe you brought a vegetable, maybe a salad, maybe a dessert. And you put it all out on the table and everybody eats. What they were doing is they were bringing food to this love feast meal and some people were bringing filet mignon and other people were bringing spam, whatever. And, and they didn't share it. And, and one group brought two buck chuck and the other brought $300 bottle of wine. And they didn't share it. And so one group is humiliated, one group is hungry, they don't have anything, not even spam. And the other group is sumptuous and drunk. And yet they professed a gospel that said, you're right with God based on Christ alone. Christ plus nothing. Right? That's what we say. That's the gospel. Christ plus nothing. It's not Christ plus baptism. It's not Christ plus this or Christ plus that or Christ plus speaking in tongues or something. It's Christ alone. And people that profess Christ alone sometimes practice a fellowship that's Christ plus. Well, if you believe in Jesus and went to Oregon State, I'll get along with you. Or you, went to, you, you believe in Jesus and, and, and went to Eugene, I can get along with you. Or you believe in Jesus and you drive my kind of truck or car. Or, or you believe in Jesus and chew the same kind of tobacco or whatever. You figure it out. But we act that way in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's dishonoring to God. We have a Christ plus nothing gospel. We need to have a Christ plus nothing fellowship. And they had a, 
I guess I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They had a Christ plus nothing gospel, but when he came to their fellowship and relationship, they had a Christ plus something else. And Paul will have none of it. They profess, here's another way to think of it, they profess the gospel vertically. But the gospel we profess vertically, we're supposed to practice horizontally. And, and I want to give them, like I said, give them the benefit of the doubt. They've got the vertical kind of straight, but the horizontal is a mess. The horizontal at Corinth is a mess. They need to realize that the only people at the table are hopeless sinners. They need to realize, to use the language from Romans, I mean from 1 Corinthians 1, that, there are, that the nobodies, the things that are not, have as much place and right to the table as the somebodies. They need to realize that money and education and social standing make no difference in the kingdom of God. So, what about you? When you come to church, who do you gravitate toward? Who do you want to talk to? Who do you want to sit with? Here's my advice, and always has been my advice to people in congregations I've pastored. When you come to church and look for somebody to hang out with, look for the people Jesus would look for. Who would Jesus look for? I think if you read the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus would look for people that were not well put together. He would look for the needy, the hurting, the notoriously sinful, people like fishermen, shepherds, the woman at the well, tax collectors, and others of the sort. So look at the church then present and look at the church not present, the church locally and globally. Uh, Look at the church that's gone before us and the reward they have and the feast that we will share with them, the Revelation 19 feast. So where do I want you to look next Sunday morning during the Lord's Supper? I want you to look within. I want you to look back. I want you to look up. I want you to look forward. And I want you to look around at the body of Christ that Jesus died for. Friends, if you'll do that under the Spirit's guidance, I believe that you will come to the Lord's table in what this text calls a worthy manner. God will be glorified, and I believe you will be blessed. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for this word. Um, I pray that your spirit would work and apply and deal with all of us as we need to be dealt with. And I pray that it will be a glorious morning next Sunday when the sacrament is served and that people will look within, look back, look up, look forward, and look around. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.